Last time we were in the study of Luke, we saw Jesus ascend to a mountaintop where he spent the entire night in sincere prayer to the Father as he sought to choose the 12 apostles. And then we find out in verse 17 that after he chose the 12, he came down from the mountain and he was met by a large group of disciples and a multitude of people who had gathered. And Luke then tells us that he began to heal and to cast out demons amongst those within the group. In fact, Luke adds, adds this one detail that he healed them all. Now, something happens when you have a multitude of sick, sick people and they are supernaturally healed on the same day. You have a tendency of gaining their attention. So when Jesus had the attention of this multitude of people, he chose to use it to be able to preach a sermon. And the sermon that he preaches here in Luke chapter 6 sounds probably very familiar to the majority of us in here, many of us. It sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5. More specifically, it sounds like, like the Beatitudes that we find there. It's, it's where Jesus says, Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Many of us are probably very familiar with that. And that's why when we read here, Luke chapter 6, why it just sounded so familiar to all of us. In fact, there are some that call this the Beatitudes of Luke. So what they believe, scholars, many scholars believe that this was the same sermon that was preached by Jesus, but yet just two different biblical accounts, one by Matthew and one by Luke. But then there are some others, and for good reason, that think that these two sermons may have been completely different than one another. And they give a list of why they think that they might be different. Number one is that they seem to take place in a different location. Uh, the one in Matthew chapter 5 uh, took place on the mountains, hence the name Sermon on the Mount. Uh, here, it doesn't, he says he comes down from the mountain. He preaches on a flat place, or the plains is where he preaches. So it could be that these were two different sermons at two different places. Uh, another difference is that Luke gives this long list of blessed statements where Luke's is much shorter. And not only that, but after he gives a list of, of blessings, he gives a list of woes. That is specifically cursings that Ma Matthew's account doesn't, doesn't record at all. Another difference between them, and I think this is probably the most significant, is that they seem to emphasize two completely different things. Matthew seems to emphasize the spiritual, while Luke seems to emphasize uh, the physical. For example, uh, when Matthew writes, he, he writes, "'Blessed are the poor in spirit,' where here in Luke, he just simply says, "'Blessed of those who are poor.'" Uh, then again, uh, Luke or Matthew ends up writing, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And yet here, Luke says, blessed are you who are hungry now. So there's a difference. So the question is, is this the same sermon or is it two different sermons? And the truth is it could very well be two different sermons or it could very well be the same sermon just emphasizing two completely different things. That's, by the way, what we do oftentimes here on a Sunday morning. You, you do it without even knowing it. I get up, I'll preach a sermon, or one of the other pastors will preach a sermon, and we'll have one primary theme, one primary biblical idea, and you guys will apply it in a million different ways. You'll hear the same sermon, one person will leave, a married man will leave, sitting there going, man, I really need to start leading my family spiritual, spiritually. A single man will leave and go, man, I really need to get a job. And you're sitting back and you're thinking, how in the world did you get those 
those two completely different applications out of that one point. Well, that's how the Word of God works. There's one usually broad theological truth that is God's truth, and then the Holy Spirit has a way of using it and applying it in so many different ways to us. So here, by the move of the Holy Spirit, they could be emphasizing different things. And this would really make sense for Luke to be emphasizing the, the, the physical, and more specifically, the physical sufferings of this world. Because he actually writes on physical sufferings more than any of the other gospel writers do. And when he does, he doesn't just leave it at physical suffering. He usually uses the physical suffering of people to drive deeper into a deeper theological truth. And that's what I think he's doing here. I, I think what he's doing is he's, he's letting people know, hey, you may be suffering from, all, from a myriad of different vices and problems and difficulties and hardships inside of your life, but you can have hope in the midst of them. Uh, not, not merely in spite of them, but notice this, but because of your sufferings, you are actually blessed. And so, see, this is, this is different. This is really different because people in Luke's day were exactly the way that they are today. When we think of blessings, we don't usually think of poverty, hunger, sorrow, and persecution. We usually think of those as cursings or else we'd sit there and go, curse us, Lord, curse us, Lord. Because the opposite, what we think of blessings is, is, is more on the line of money and food and pleasure and popularity. Those are the types of things that we think are the good things of life. But yet Luke quotes Jesus and in Jesus' sermon, he turns all of this completely upside down. And he says, you think that those who are blessed in this world, th those who are suffering in this world are actually cursed. I tell you, they're blessed. And the people that you think are blessed are actually cursed. Now that is upside down, surely. So what we need to do is we need to understand what did Jesus mean by this? And I think to unpack it, we've got to answer three questions. First of all, who are the blessed and who are the cursed? That's the first thing we have to figure out. The second thing we have to figure out is this, is how are they blessed and how are they cursed specifically? And then the third thing we want to look at this morning before the Lord's Supper is how does a promise of blessing motivate you and I as believers in Jesus Christ? So let's try to seek to answer this, unpack this by answering the first question, who are the blessed and who are the cursed? Well, let's begin with those who are blessed. Verse 20, follow along with me, if you will. It says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now, Jesus is giving a blessing to a number of categories of people who are suffering greatly, to, to the poor, to the hungry, to the weeping, to the hated. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is this a blanket blessing over all who are suffering in those ways? Does that mean that everybody in the world who is poor, everybody in the world who is hated by man, no matter how or why they got there, that automatically they are blessed of God? Or is he, does he have a particular group of poor, hungry, weeping, and hated people in mind? And the answer to that is, I think, the second, the latter. He's not, this is not just a blanket saying, hey, you, people may hate you because you're a jerk. Well, I'm gonna bless you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, there is a particular group who is suffering in these ways that I am blessing. 
How do we know that? Well, he, he, gives us, he, he gives us a qualifying statement in the beginning of verse 20. Notice it. He says, he says there, he lifted up his eyes on his who? On his disciples, his disciples. So the ones that he's calling a blessing on are those believers in Jesus Christ who are suffering. Those believers in Jesus Christ who repent and place their faith in him. He says, those are the ones, the poor, the hungry, the weeping and hated believers. He says, I'm pouring and you yourselves are indeed blessed. And then he begins, to, he begins to define this even more when he says in verse 22, note this, he says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. So they're not just in general, just general suffering. I think that's included too. But more specifically, they are suffering simply because they were followers of Jesus Christ. And this would have been very, very meaningful for the first century believers because many of them paid a great price to follow after Jesus Christ. They would have paid a great price. A majority of them would have suffered in a number of different ways. A majority of them would have lost their jobs. They would have been in prison. They would have been homeless. They would have been in poverty, not because they were doing reckless things and wrong things. These, not because of the result of, of unrighteousness, but because they were doing things right simply because they were living their lives completely for the person of Jesus Christ in submission to him. He said, you are suffering on account of that and you are blessed because of it. That's who the blessed are that he's referring to. Then he begins to talk about those who are cursed. Who are they? Well, he says, woe to them. Same thing as cursed. Pick up in verse 24. He says, but woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, uh, for so their fathers did to the prophets as well. So notice the, the woe or the cursed here are the rich, the full, the, uh, the full, those who laugh and those who are spoken well of. Now, again, we got to ask the same question that we did of the blessed. Does this mean everybody who falls into these categories, no matter who you are or how you got there, does it mean that you are cursed? And the simple answer to that is no, because Jesus does not hold to critical theory. And if you want to know what that means, make sure you come to our social justice conference, all right? But what we mean here is this. He is, again, he is not talking about everybody who is rich, everybody who is full, everybody who laughs, everybody who is spoken well of is cursed. He, he narrows this down as well. Now, there is no clue of who he's specifically talking about like it was in the blessed. Remember back in the blessed, he gave the qualifying statement that these were disciples. Do you remember that? And, and then also that they were suffering on the count of Jesus Christ, which lets us know that they're suffering because they're following Jesus Christ. Well, there's no qualifying statement here to tell us who they are, but logically we understand who he's talking about because what he's doing is he's comparing and contrasting two groups. He's, he's contrasting those who are suffering with those who are prospering. And those who are suffering are believers in Jesus Christ. Therefore, those who are prospering are what? Are unbelievers, those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And so those who are suffering, or those who are prospering at this point, who have everything you can imagine in life, he says, you are actually, you appear to be blessed, but you in fact are the most cursed among us. That's who the, that's who the blessed are, and that's who the cursed are. 
Now let's look at this second thing. How are they blessed and how are they cursed? Well, let's look at the blessed first. How, how does God ultimately bless them? What blessing is he giving them? First of all, they are blessed now. In the present, they are blessed. Notice he says, as believer, he says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. He doesn't say for yours will be the kingdom of God or someday you will inherit the kingdom of God. No, he says, yours is the kingdom of God. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your own sin and placed your faith completely in Christ's work and you are born again, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, which means you right now enjoy all the rights and the privileges of being a child of God. That means in your life now, not even in the future, that right now that God is providing direction and protection and provision and most of all, his presence with you. That is the blessings that you and I are enjoying right now where we are as citizens of the kingdom of God. And so what we find is, he says, this is what we have now, but this blessing that he's speaking is not just for now, it's also going to include a time to come. He'll say, for great is your reward in heaven. Some blessings now, the bulk of those blessings and their manifestations, however, are going to come in in the life to come, in the future. And so in essence, what he's telling them, uh, in essence is, hey, listen, you hunger and you have sorrow now and, and, and physically you are suffering, but here is your blessing. You're not alone. God is with you. He is directing you. He is protecting you. He is providing for you. He is present with you. Remember that blessing in the midst of this. And he goes, but I want you to know that there is even greater blessing which is ultimately going to come, a greater manifestation of these realities for you as a child of God, as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Because what will happen is one day all of those sufferings will be taken away and all that will be left is that great reward. And so here's what he's saying. Hunger, sorrow, physical suffering will be taken away and in its place will be eternal satisfaction, eternal laughter and heavenly rewards. That is a blessing for all those who dare suffer on the count of Christ's sake, on righteousness' sake. That's their blessing here and in the future. Now, what about the cursed? Now, remember in context, we know who the cursed are. It's not all the rich and the full and the laughing and the popular but it's those instead who got there and obtained those things apart from Jesus Christ. For example, they sought, they sought the world. Here, here's what we say. They sought the world's riches instead of seeking the riches of Christ and they did it all apart from him. They sought satisfaction and to be full by the things of the world rather than being satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. They laughed and scoffed at the things of God and the people of God, and they sought the applause of people rather than the applause of Christ. And here's the key. Here's the part of their judgment. The part of their judgment is what they experience in this world is all they will ever have. This is it. There is no more. Where there is some suffering, there will be an eternity of rejoicing. Where there is temporal happiness and rejoicing for this group of people, there will be eternal sorrow. This is, I think, one of the clearest places in the word of God where this is, comes to life is actually in Luke again, in Luke 16. I think the best illustrations to use are really biblical illustrations, and for good reason. 
But let me read the story of Lazarus and the rich man to you for a moment and see if you can't see these blessings and cursings in it as we've just described. In Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, it says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and he feasted sumptuously every day. And at the gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores and he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Can there be any greater distinction between those, that man who is prospering and the man who is suffering? No, there, he's very clear. Even the dogs are coming to lick this man's open wounds and sores. Now then notice this. The poor man died and is carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades being tormented. He lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am anguish in this flame. He is suffering so much. His only desire in life is for one simple drop of water to be able to cool and to quench the flame that is on his tongue. That's his greatest desire now. In this world, he had it all. In the next world, everything is ultimately stripped away from him. And now he's pleading for some type of satisfaction, for some type of fulfillment. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted and you are in anguish. Do you see the reason why? When Jesus preaches, he says, you who are suffering now on account of me, you are truly the blessed. You who appear and consider yourself blessed apart from me, you are truly who is ultimately cursed. They will live in eternity with a ravenous craving that will never be satisfied. They will mourn and weep without any possibility of comfort. And instead of being commended by men, they will be forever condemned by God. That's the distinction. That's one being blessed and one being cursed. That's what it ultimately looks like. Now, how does that motivate us? How does this, my, my next point is, how does a promise of blessing motivate us? Notice I didn't say, how does the promise of cursing motivate us? Because I think that's, that doesn't even have to be said, right? We got done with that last story and go, bro, that's brutal. I don't want a piece of that at all. And we could probably expand on that. And it would be right for us to do so because Jesus is letting us know, warning us, if we do not repent and place our faith in him, there is only tragedy ultimately to be able to come. And that is right to be able to do so. It is loving, church, listen to me. It is loving to let people know of the perils that come when we have not placed our faith in Jesus Christ. It is a loving thing to be able to do. But because I think that it spoke so clearly there, let me unpack how the positive motivation actually motivates us and in the way that it motivates us. Three things very quickly before we take the Lord's Supper. Number one, it motivates us as witnesses. It motivates us as witnesses. One of the key identical marks of every true believer in Jesus Christ is joy. When you look in the New Testament and we talk about the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit are identifying markers of all who are not only believers in Jesus Christ, but are walking in the Spirit of God. And it gives us this long list, love, and number two is joy. 
You want to know somebody who is truly born again and walking in the Spirit. They are filled with joy, and get this, despite what's happening in their life. See, joy is different than happiness. You understand that. Uh, happiness is fleeting. It really depends on what's happening. My, my, my happiness was fleeting on Friday afternoon when the speaker for today, Jared, called up and said, hey, I can't make it. You'll have to preach. No happiness. All gone at that moment. Stress coming in. But there was no change of joy. A deep down understanding conviction of joy that I have in the person of Jesus Christ and that love and his love for me never changes. Nothing of that has changed. And, and, and yet in the midst of all of this, did, did you know that, that believers have, don't have a hard time at all understanding why you would be joyful when everything is going your way? When you as a believer, when things seem to be coming up roses and your business is doing well and your marriage is great and the kids are behaving and you just got a brand new car and they sit there and they go, well, yeah, he's a Christian, he's joyful, but it's clear why he's joyful. He's got everything that he wants. That was even really the condemnation. Remember of Satan, uh, Satan in the Old Testament to Job? Well, of course he loves you. He's got everything that he could ever want. Take it away and he'll curse you to your face. See, an unbelieving world is not looking for Christians. They're not convinced by Christians who are joyful when everything is going well. They want to see some kind of joy in the midst of tragedy and suffering. And when we cling to this and understand the reality of what is happening here, when we understand how God blesses us as believers that in the midst of our sorrow in the midst of our difficulty, in the midst of, of our pains, that there is still joy because, again, God is directing, protecting, providing, and his presence is with us, that he's blessing us that way, and that there is something far grander to come than in this very short time of life that we have, then guess what? When we grasp that, the world, a lost and dying world, can see the joy that they know nothing of. So it motivates us as witnesses, but it also motivates us as servants, Understanding the rewards for Christ, following Christ, obeying Christ's life, rests primarily in the world to come and not in this world, frees us to serve others without demanding rewards now. Stop and think about that for a minute. How often have we gotten our feelings hurt because we've worked our finger to the bone in service to other people and nobody even said thank you, right? How many times do we do it? And, and, and nobody even gives us a plaque. Nobody rewards us. Nobody gives anything. We literally even sit back and go, you know, I did all this and nobody even said anything. I didn't even get a thank you. Uh, have you, you? Don't tell me you haven't done that. I know you have. And so every single one of us, well, what happens is, is God gets us out of that. See, what that will do is you will become constrained and you will become imprisoned to the praise of other people which means that you won't do anything unless you feel like you're being identified and, being, being, and people are recognizing how great you are and the great deeds that you have done. Jesus Christ in this truth frees us from that. He freezes us, he freezes us from that, from, freezes from that from this way, but first of all, by giving us the promise, but also by warning us. In Matthew chapter six, verse two, he wrote this. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that you may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. You know what he's saying? Don't do anything to be able to seek the praise of other people. When you do, 
just like the loss, that is your reward in full. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you do something well and somebody recognizes you, gives you a plaque, calls you up on stage and goes, hey, we want to thank you for your faithful service, that you sit there and go, no, don't thank me, no. And then be fearful that you lost your reward in heaven. That's not what's going on here. In fact, the Bible says that we should honor people who do well, who teach well, who look after ourselves. There's times to be able, it is appropriate to be able to recognize people to do that. Here's his point. It's not what drives you. When you are driven for the applause and the recognition of men, that's all you're getting. But instead, do all that you do knowing that there is a much greater reward that is coming, those things that you are doing in secret. Let me give you a third point of application, and we'll wrap up with this. It motivates us to remain focused. You know, one of the biggest things that I recognize for believers in 2020 is that we're just completely uh, unfocused. We're, we're, we're completely distracted with so many things going on. You leave 2020 and three things are on our mind, COVID, politics, and what else? What else? Joe Exotic. That's it. Three things that are on our mind as we leave 2020. It's all that is on our mind. And so those are the three things that we're thinking as we leave. And the problem is, and through all of the midst of that, nothing has changed as the call of God on your life and my life. Nothing has changed. He's still laid upon us the responsibility to take the gospel to the whole, to the whole world and to be able to make disciples of all nations. That has not changed in the slightest. But what this does is this begins to call us back and lets us know you are here for a purpose. You are not to be distracted by your much sufferings. As soon as we begin to feel as though we're suffering for something, especially for righteousness sake, what do we begin to do? How do I get out of the suffering? What do I do? Even our whole prayers, all they are consumed with is God, get me out of this. What are you doing? I'm just waiting for God to get me out of this. Well, guess what? The Bible says you may never get out of it. Not in this life. In this life, he says, you are going to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ and you are actually blessed of it. So how does, in the midst of all of this, how did these blessings help us to navigate through it and actually experience the blessing of God? When I was in, um, when I was in college, um, my dad uh, worked at a hospital. And so whenever I had a break, whether that would be summer break or Christmas break, I would always come home and get a job, a part-time job, or in, well, it's kind of full-time, part-time, but anyway, uh, in, in the school or in the hospital itself. Well, it, now it sounds good. It sounds like, oh, your daddy working at the hospital, getting you a job. It was nothing like that. He always gave me the worst possible jobs in the hospital, the worst. And so one of the jobs was in the linen department. Do you know what that means? Yeah, it's delivering those nice, clean linens. Yes, but it's also taking the dirty soil linens away and separating them, which is beyond disgusting, right? And so I would go and I'd fill all these up and I'd be like, hey, your dad gets your job. Yeah, what do you do? I, I work with dirty linens. That's what I do. That's how I get paid. Now, that was a bad job. The worst job for me, however, was the pots and pans room. Hated it. 
Because in this one big, massive hospital down in Sarasota, Florida, where there's like over 1,200 beds, there's thousands of people that work there and everything else come in and out on a daily basis, there is one place where all the pots and pans are washed. This small, little, humid, disgusting, wet room that stinks like mildew. And you go in there, and basically, here's what you do. You come in in the morning, and there's 100 pans stacked from you from the night before that you have to begin to wash. And so you begin to wash them, and you can't help but to feel bitter to whoever placed them there. And so you begin to clean them out, and then you become even more bitter because for whatever reason, those who use those pans to cook can't cook anything without burning the mess out of it. And so there you are trying to scrub with a knife to get all the burnt pieces off. And then when you're halfway through, 50 pans in, then all of a sudden somebody comes with a tray and gives you another 100 pans for you to be able to clean all over again. Do you understand the bitterness that can begin? And I know you feel the same way because you wash your dishes at home and you know when you're almost done and somebody comes by and plops something in there, all of a sudden you become enraged whether you admit it or not. And so there you are, you're cleaning and you're doing all this stuff. And I really begin to become angry and embittered towards anybody, the cooks, the people that would come and put, I, I was just mad. And I left my dad, I go, I don't think I could do this anymore. I just can't go in there one more day and go through this again. And he goes, why is it so bad? He goes, I mean, people are throwing stuff in the sink. I'm getting splashed. I, don't, I just don't like it. And this is what my dad said. He says, son, he goes, is your aspiration for the rest of your life to work in that pots and pans room? Is, is that why you're doing it? Is because that's what you aspire to be able to do? That's what you think your future is ultimately going to be? I go, no. I didn't really say it that way because I'd be wearing dentures today if I actually said it that way to my dad. We lived in a different time. You wouldn't understand. And so, um, and, and, and so no, I mean, I would sit there and say, no. And he goes, but isn't this a means to an end and not an end into itself? Yes. Isn't what you're doing now going to benefit you for the future and even where you're going in the direction that you're ultimately going? Well, yes, sir, it is. And I gotta be honest with you, that really helped me. It helped me to be able to show up at work and not be embittered. Now, nothing changed. People are still piling up dirty pans, dirt, dirty pots. It's still hot. They're still throwing stuff in there. It's still plash, splashing up in my eye. All of these things are still happening. Nothing's changing, but my outlook has changed. And that is that I knew that this was temporal. But what was ultimately to come was far more grand. And I think that this is precisely what Paul means in Romans 8.18. When he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Another translation, and I love this, I think it really captures it. He says, I am convinced that any suffering we endure is less than nothing compared to the magnitude of glory that is about to be revealed to us. And so I want to encourage you, because so many people are sitting there and thinking that my joy and my hope is only based on my circumstances ultimately changing. Some of you are saying, I'm following God, I'm doing these things, and in fact, I'm suffering because of my obedience to God. I'm just looking for things to change. Some people are gonna come and preach to you and they're gonna preach erroneously and tell you God doesn't want you in the midst of that. God doesn't want you suffering in that way. God, if you just have enough faith, you're gonna be delivered out of that way. This is completely different than the teaching of the word of God. He comes to you and says, you are blessed in the midst of that suffering as you continue to pursue after Jesus Christ because what sufferings you experience here are not worthy to be compared to the infathomable 
blessings that are ultimately to come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you, God. Lord, for bringing this word alive to us, that we would understand, God, that, that those who seemingly are cursed in this world, those who are following Christ, even when things are falling apart, that they are truly blessed here and in the world to come. God, I pray for those who are here today. Maybe, maybe some are sitting here this morning and maybe they sit there and go, wait a minute, I'm rich, I'm this, I'm that, I'm that. And that may not be a bad thing at all. But God, there might be some here that they are living like lost people. They are living for the materialistic things of the world. They are doing and living apart from you. God, that is a fearful thing. It, it could very well mean that they are not in the faith of Jesus Christ. So I pray that you will save them. You will convict them this morning. And I also pray that you would come for every believer here who is suffering for righteousness sake, that they will recognize how beautiful and how wonderful and how awesome your many blessings are here and in the world to come. We thank you in your precious name we pray. Amen.